welcome. I'm Lorelei Binstock, and this is a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Thank you again for joining me for my first ever live show on Fireside Chat. I am your host, Lori Lee Binstock. And the purpose of the show, if you haven't listened to it previously, is to highlight trauma survivor thrivers and the beauty of post-traumatic growth. I know this is an interactive audience. This is my first show. And so I'm learning and getting my bearings. So I know I'm trying to figure out how to bring everyone in. If you do have a question, please feel free to ask. Um, my guest today is Shannon Maroney. And if you are interested in asking a question, please raise your hand. Like I said, this is my first time actually doing the show on this platform. Um, so I will try to get everyone up on the stage to ask um, Shannon any questions that you might have. Uh, Shannon is a best-selling author of two memoirs, Through the Glass, her own story following the violent crimes committed by her first husband, and Out of the Shadows, um, the story of human sex trafficking survivor Tamia Naj. Um, I hope I'm saying that right. I felt like I was reading, um, I, I was hearing it different ways, and I actually read the uh, or listened to the audiobook, and it was on, it was amazing, both both books are amazing. Um, Shannon, she's also a trauma therapist and a clinical director of Shannon Maroney and Associates, currently providing treatment support and advocacy for dozens of survivors of disgraced fashion mogul uh, Peter Nygaard. He's currently awaiting extradition to the U.S. on a nine-count tra sex trafficking and racketeering indictment, while also on trial in Canada for similar charges. Shannon is also the author of Heal for Real, a guided journal to forgiving others and yourself, which was just released last week on January 4th. And you can, if you see that fortune cookie, it says bestselling author, and you can actually click on it and you can actually go to her website where you can purchase these books. Um, they're fantastic. I read all three during the break. Um, but we, but Shannon, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Laura Lee. I am just delighted to be here. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm delighted that you were my first guest just on the platform and in 2022. <laughs> it's awesome. I'm delighted as well. It's just coming to this this uh, new year with um, nothing but hope. <laughs> what else can we yeah. have? <laughs> that is the theme, hope. And, uh, you know, one of the things I really wanted to focus on was fluidity. Like, I realized that things are going to have to change, you know, um, when we least expect it. And honestly, for this whole week, I was expecting my children to um, potentially not have school. And luckily, they are. So they're, you know, everything's okay. But yeah, I think fluidity and hope is is what we need for 2022. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. I mean, as I broadcast to you in this beautiful audience, I am in isolation with a very mild case of COVID. I'm, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm, I, no, it's okay. I'm triple vaxxed. Um, my kids are we all of our schools are closed here in Toronto. So 
it's just, you know, living the dream. <laughs> right. We're just, we're just moving along with it. We're just moving yeah, along exactly, with it. Exactly. But, um, but I'm thrilled to be here and start about and, and talk about all these um, really important topics. And I just thank you so much for that introduction um, about the beauty of post-traumatic growth. Is that, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. When you're really in it, you don't realize that there's post-traumatic growth on the other side of it all. And I think highlighting that is extremely important. So people know that we, we don't have to sit in the mess that that we feel like in some ways we've created, but honestly, that's, that's not true. And I think, you know, you say F is, or forgiveness is the new F word. And I think a lot of it is forgiving ourselves for, for what we put ourselves through um, but we will get to that when we talk about your book, Heal for Real, which I'm very excited about. Um, but first, I want to kind of talk about, you know, you and your personal story, which you write about so eloquently in your first bestseller, Through the Glass, which one month into your marriage, you found out that your husband had kidnapped and, and raped, allegedly raped two women. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it wasn't alleged, that's for sure, because um, he had actually called 911 himself and um, and asked the police for help right after he did this. Um, and so, you know, in the instant that a police officer showed up at my hotel room door, I was actually, we lived in a small community a couple of hours north of Toronto in Canada. Um, and I was in Toronto um, for a conference. I was a, a high school counselor at the time. And uh, the police officer came to my hotel room and he told me uh, what had happened. And he said, you know, your, your husband is in custody um, and he, he called 911 himself. Uh, and he's given a full statement that is an exact match to the statements of the victims. And so I had really a split second only to think that there was some mistake. And then as soon as he said that, I know that I knew that there was no mistake at all. Um, and uh, the next thing I was told was um, that he would be likely a, a candidate for our highest sentence in Canada, the dangerous offender designation, um, which would mean uh, the rest of his life in prison because he, he had an offense from 18 years ago, um, 18 years before. So uh, in this, uh, so he was already on his second chance, a second chance that had been, you know, um, I think, like the best second chance that anyone could have and to all eyes and, and everyone's knowledge that knew him from, you know, uh, folks, professional folks that supported him uh, being and living safely and successfully in the community as he had for years to me who lived with him every day. Um, we just could not fathom that, that he was capable of what, he had proven himself to be capable of on this nightmare day in, in 2005. Um, and then uh, my journey at that moment, you know, of hearing this from the officer was to basically lose all the, all the beautiful and proud titles that I'd carried the previous day. So respected educator, volunteer in my community, um, happy newlywed, homeowner, um, all of those things were 
essentially torn away from me by what he did. And I was given a new title, wife of a sex offender. And my journey became almost instantaneously and over the following years. And, and sometimes even until today, you know, there we are still have moments of, uh, you don't forget. I mean, you, you always carry with you what, what happened to you. But my journey became to get out from under that label and reclaim the labels that properly belonged to me, um, which, which were of respect and not of guilt by association. Wow. The trauma betrayal seemed enough for you to actually deal with. But from what I read in your book, you were vilified for being the spouse of someone who committed these violent acts. How did that affect you in ways that other people could not see? Because I feel like a lot of people do um, place so much judgment on others without really knowing what those other people are going through. Um, How did that affect you and how you reacted? Oh my gosh. It was, uh, it, it was like waking up from a nightmare to find that you're in a nightmare in a nightmare. Hmm. Um, they, you know, people who uh, are, when we look at earthquakes, for example, um, the greatest attention gets paid to the primary earthquake, but we actually know that the aftershocks can be absolutely just as damaging. So for me, um, being, having this horrific stigma applied to you and immediate judgment of so many, not everybody. And I want to really just shout out to my beloved people and all the people on this planet who are non-judgmental, who have compassion and who do things for people in crisis, like what was done for me, dropping off a small lasagna, a card that says, I'm thinking of you. I'm here for you. Um, those are the things that ultimately allowed me to be where I am today. Um, but it was certainly, um, because, well, I mean, they, those acts of kindness and compassion and non-judgment are the antidote to the, the, you know, the opposite of those, the, the judgment, the, the shaming, the exclusion, shunning even, um, and, and even the, the full, um, you know, vilification, uh, one, the worst, aspect of that for me, uh, was losing my job. Um, and having my, uh, my, my principal, my superintendent tell me that I would be moved to a, uh, a school outside of our town, like a, a literal shunning, get out of here. We don't want to see you. We don't want to deal with this. And, because ultimately we'll believe you're guilty by association and being told by them in the most fragile state I could possibly find myself in having, you know, have my home become a crime scene, uh, in absolute agony for the victims who the police immediately told me I could not have any contact with, even though all my family and I wanted to do was offer to help them support them. Um, we were just immediately told like, you're on the side of the offender. Um, and you know, the, the absolute heartbreak of losing everything about the life that I'd built and planned for to, um, you know, hearing from my, from my employer, um, that I, I represented something terrible. That's what they said. 
you represent something ter terrible, Shannon. People are saying, how could you be a good counselor when you were married to this man? And don't come back in the school. It's too upsetting for everybody. And we'll just move you outside of town when your doctor says you're ready to come back to work. Um, and, and that, <laughs> that um, character assault and attack, exclusion and shunning, was what really led to my PTSD diagnosis. And then I wasn't well enough to go back to work for a long time. Right. I, I, I can't imagine. How do you, especially with all the shunning, everyone telling you that you are guilty by association, how do you face people? Uh, how actually, how did you? Well, yeah, I mean, it, I, it was winter when this happened, and I know listeners are probably from all, all over a place, uh, but our winters uh, here are very long, very cold, very dark. And so I actually felt safer for a number of months because I could literally hide myself with scarf hat. You know, it, it's interesting. I'll interrupt myself to say that many of the survivors that I support uh, now uh, in a pandemic where you have to wear a mask have actually reported that it makes them feel a bit safer mm -hmm. because they cannot be identified. Um, and they can't be, if they can't be identified, they can't be judged. And that is so painful that anyone who's been in trauma, anyone who's, um, you know, a victim of someone else's choices would have to feel that fear of judgment. Um, and I, I'm working really, really hard to change that. But for me at the time, I sort of, you know, muddled along with the support of, of family and the, the friends that really stuck by me. And when it came to be spring, I started to feel really exposed and afraid even more. And ultimately, um, what I, I knew I couldn't live in my small community. I'd also lost my income, my husband's income. I put my house up for rent and, Somehow in the midst of all of it, I mean, we do find adrenaline in survival. Um, I managed to write an application to com complete a master's degree in social work. Um, I thought a little bit about it before all of this, so it, it wasn't just an out of the blue thing. Um, and then apply for a scholarship, and uh, which I won, and I was able to move to England uh, to study for a year. Um, and that's how I, I had to remove myself from the physical space that was really unsafe that my community and, um, and be able to go and put my mind to work on something that felt productive and that was going to, in one way or another, help me try to make sense of the senseless. And as an educator, I just... I actually realized everything that I'd always told all of my students was true, which is that education opens doors and it's the best gift we can give to ourselves. And when I had doors slamming in my face um, and, and all of that closed to me, I just knew I had to try to open as many doors as I could. And so I um, educated myself further. How did you heal from this? I'm assuming, was there what were your emotions towards your husband? I'm sure that they evolved from when you first heard to now. Um, but what is that like right now? Yeah, well, okay. Well, I can, uh, I'll get to the right now part in a second, but at the time, um, 
you know, I think most people really expected to me, me to be filled with anger, absolute rage. And that's often the expectation of trauma survivors or whatever way we have been victimized um, is that you're, you're incredibly angry. But in my own experience and what I've learned, what I even learned about Jason, my first husband's uh, victims, when I later um, heard their stories in court and, and had a, a chance to speak with them, was they was that the primary emotion is usually heartbreak. It's absolute profound sadness at the idea, not only the idea, but the actions that someone took to hurt you. And the realization of somehow the place that they must have been in to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And so the sadness and heartbreak and grief was absolutely over overwhelming and a broken heart can't hold anger very well, not for, not for long periods of time. So my anger came about a year later. I mean, it it would bubble up and there's a scene in my book where I do get really, really angry. And, you know, I, I find out that Jason had a credit card that I didn't know about. And it was almost as if that was a, a tangible thing that I could get angry about um, because I, it was almost um, smaller. Mm-hmm. It, it was a smaller crime compared to what he had done. But And the, and the biggest stuff was beyond anger for me. It was just beyond it. Um, anger came about a year later. Um, and that when, it, when it hit me, it hit like, like a tidal wave. Um, and it, it just was, it wasn't only anger at Jason and what he, it, what he had done. Most of my anger for Jason was just that he had not, he hadn't asked for help that I didn't, I didn't have a chance. It was helplessness. I didn't have a chance to stop this. Mm-hmm. Um, but my anger was also then at the justice system. Uh, it was at my employer. It was at the people who excluded me and who had judged me. And it was an absolutely flooding, terrifying anger. Um, and fortunately, you know, you asked me about how did I get through this? I have my heroes, my golden circle, um, my, some of my family members, my parents, um, and I have my family doctor was one of the only people who, who, I mean, she stepped in right away and said, I'm going to help you through this. Okay. I'm going to help you through this. Mm-hmm. And instead of, she offered me a, she said, you can have one of two types of prescriptions. You can, I can give you a prescription for something that's going to help, um, you know, kind of numb some of your emotions right now. Um, or I can prescribe you something that's going to help you get them out in a really safe way. And that's going to be art. And uh, now this is a very, um, renegade, um, GP, you know, <laughs> like, uh, and, and exactly what I needed. It was the prescription of exactly what I needed it was a safe way to let out these emotions so that they didn't, they didn't poison me from the inside. Um, and I started making some of the ugliest art, art <laughs> that there is. 
Um, they doubt they're ugly. <laughs> they're power. Let's say powerful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> powerful. <laughs> um, and that is what helped was the safe space of understanding opportunities to let out my feelings without judgment, be allowed to go in and out of grief, to anger, to hope, to, um, you know, just sometimes even just a fantasy thoughts of like how they're going to find a cure for what's wrong with him and everyone's going to be okay to, you know, back to, to grief and, and cycling through all of that. So how I got through it was with support. Um, there wasn't enough support I can say, and that's what I've dedicated my own life to is, is, is being a provider of support and care and advocating for a lot of changes in the justice system and mental health that would allow everyone to have non-judgmental and sustained support. Um, and then a lot of it was, um, resilience. You know, I was in, I was probably in the best place in my life when this happened to me. Mm. So my tank was pretty full. Um, so I was able to, um, you know, propel myself through a lot of it. Um, but the tank runs out and I think that's when things got pretty hard for me. Um, I mean, not that everything wasn't, it was just different, (laughs) different phases of hard and awful, but, um, I, the, I would say the, the gift that I'm maybe most thankful for uh, in myself is just that I, I really love life. Yeah. I really love life. And I, and I just knew somehow from the beginning that Jason was going to be sentenced to prison for the rest of his life, but I was going to have a choice about whether or not I would be sentenced to a personal prison, a psychological prison, an emotional prison of anger, resentment, rage. And I didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. And even if I didn't want to be for me, I didn't want that for my parents. I didn't want that for people who love me. And that's what pushed me forward was that resolve. Wow. And you also began speaking out and actually telling your story and to other families and reaching out to other families who had been through similar situations and even those who are on the other side of it. Um, what did they want to say to you when they reached out to you? What did, what did they need from you and what did you need from them? Well, it's, it's a little bit different. Um, I actually, when I decided to tell my story, when I decided to speak about it and write about it, it was really, um, because I, they always, I think it was Maya Angelou who said, but I could be wrong. So forgive me. Um, (laughs) that said, you know, if you, if there's a book that you really, really need and you can't find it, then maybe you're supposed to be the one to write it. Mm -hmm. And this was my experience. I could not find anything about what it was like to be the family member of an offender or family member of a sex offender. No one was talking about that yet. I would look at the numbers and realize that I, you know, in Canada, I'm part of a group of 12,000 families and acquaintances and friends of people who are incarcerated. And in the U S two and a half million people are incarcerated Mm. and then let alone all over the world. And so I started thinking, but all of these people have families, all of them. Um, like no one is, no one is without someone that was in their life. Uh, that is probably going through some degree or another of what I'm going through as well. And I wanted to find those people because I, I needed to belong. 
you know, that's what lets us out of stigma is when we belong and peer support, you know, as a therapist, now I always say, you know, the, the gold standard is individual plus group therapy and peer support is what lets us know that we're normal in abnormal circumstances and that we're not alone. So because I couldn't find anyone myself, I found one person in an online group and, and, and she, uh, she and I really supported one another. Um, and her, her husband was incarcerated as well. She, you know, like me, we had a lot of other things in common as well as the, the big, big trauma. We like to scrapbook, we like to chat on the phone. We, you know, and that was really, really helpful to have one person that I could, I could talk to. Um, but ultimately I wanted to reach many more, uh, and so I wrote my book and that is when, um, there was a lot of media that surrounded it. Um, and so that's how the word got out. And then it was just a flood of people contacting me to say, you know, in our own version of a me too, yeah. um, you know, and that, and that's what led to a lot of the work that I do now to support lots of family members of, of people who have offended in my therapy practice and certainly in the advocacy work that I do. Um, and in the big case that I'm involved in, as you mentioned, and in, in, in the, uh, the Nygaard investigation, there are family members there that need someone who understands the nightmare that they are in as well. Yeah. And, and I do want to talk about your second book, which is Out of the Shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, it's your second best-selling book, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, January 11th, just this past a couple of days ago, it was Human Trafficking Awareness Day. Mm-hmm. And you wrote this book with sex trafficking survivor, survivor Tamiya Naj. How did this collaboration come about? Yeah. To, well, the interesting thing was before I, 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 I guess I found out um, that I could write uh, with uh, writing through the glass and I had a mm-hmm. wonderful, wonderful editor, but I, I, the, I'd never been a writer before that I, I would tell myself, but I actually had written uh, because I'm so old that I'm pre email. Um, and I probably wrote <laughs> hundreds of letters to people. Uh, when I lived overseas, I lived in Ecuador. I lived in Indonesia. I travel a lot and I, I just wrote hundreds of letters. And, and when you're somewhere, when you're in a foreign land, uh, and you want to share it with your experience with people who aren't there, you, you learn to describe things very well. And so when I wrote Through the Glass, I well, I was in a foreign land, the land of crime and jails and and, and courthouses and all that. So um, I found myself being able to write about it. Um, and then, so just really on the, on the writing side, as well as with my, you know, um, I think, emotional awareness and intelligence, as well as justice system knowledge. My editor at, at Penguin Random House introduced me to Tamea Nagy um, because she had heard Tamea speak and share her story, um, knew that her story needed to be in a book so it could reach you know thousands and thousands and thousands of people, um, but also knew that Tamea wasn't a writer. She's a wonderful, wonderful storyteller, but also that English is her second language. Um, that she learned from watching Friends reruns when she escaped her traffickers in Canada. So um, my editor asked uh, me if I could meet with her. Um, and I, I, she actually had said, could you just talk with her about um, writing a book and, and that um, 
all the benefits of writing a book and, and putting it out in the world. Now, I'm not going to lie and say it's it's a roller coaster ride when you go public. Mm-hmm. It, it's a roller coaster, and and you get there. Gosh, I could probably rhyme off some of the horrible, terrible things people felt it was their right to say about me. <laughs> ever meeting me uh, and online and in whatever. Um, hopefully I'm almost over that um, 10 years later, but um, and you just have to focus on all the wonderful, wonderful support that there really is. But that's right. what my editor wanted me to talk with Tamea about. And um, so I did that and I thought that my job was to kind of convince her that it could be a really important thing for her to write a book. And that was successful. We hit it off really, really well and had a great conversation. And I went home and I texted my editor on the way home uh, from our coffee date and and said, okay, job done. She will talk to you. Um, she will she will talk about writing a book with you. And my editor texted me back and she goes, okay, great. Can you do it? <laughs> and I was like, what? You bamboozled me. <laughs> you know? But ultimately I said yes and um, wrote Tamea's um, book for her um, after interviewing her extensively for hours and hours and hours, going through her work, researching and so on, and and wrote her a book. And our books become the tools that we need as advocates uh, to educate others and make things personal. Because when we, if we only see media that is statistics or cold, hard facts, or we certainly know the way that media can present survivors, um, as sort of nameless and faceless and even, you know, put them up for judgment. Um, now Tamea and I both have our personal stories that people can really connect to on a human level. And when we connect and we feel empathy, then we want to change things. Yeah. When I read it, it, it was such a well-written book, very heart-wrenching. It was, there was just, and, and, you know, I, I've, I've interviewed sex trafficking survivors, um, and I've educated myself, but just he, her story, just reading the the details, yeah, and and her response to the manipulation that went on, and you know, it was it was really hard to 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 listen to because I did listen to it mm-hmm. on Audible, um, but it was thank you for helping her share that story because I felt like I learned so much from it. Um, and you're also working with other sex trafficking survivors. What got you into to that advocacy work? Uh, yeah. Um, so after writing Tamiya's book, I mean, it's absolutely heart wrenching and gut wrenching to to read it or listen to it. It was absolutely heart wrenching and gut wrenching to write it mm-hmm. um, because you really, really to write and first person for somebody else's story, you have to be able to put yourself in their shoes. Or as I used to say to, to Maya, because she and I both have a, well, when you're in the trauma club, sometimes you can (laughs) dark humor. And, you know, I used to say, I'm putting myself in your shoes and they're like, you know, the six inch stilettos that you were forced to dance in for 16 Mm -hmm. hours a day. So that's where we had this sort of joke about stilettos and me walking in her stilettos. Um, but it, it, it truly was a, a very painful experience. And I learned a lot about self-care um, and uh, trauma re-triggering and vicarious trauma from doing that. And I learned most of it the hard way. Um, so I've got some great self-care practices in place <laughs> right now. Absolutely. Um, 
and I am a, a lifetime participant in therapy, as probably we should all be anyway. Um, but after the book came out, uh, you know, I was kind of, you sort of asked yourself, okay, what next? You know, and um, I really wanted to get back to my my first love of counseling. I'd been doing a lot of, I mean, a lot of counseling in a lot of different ways over the years. Um, I had started um, several years before that leading retreats and workshops about forgiveness because that was something that just kept coming up for the people that I worked with or the, or the questions, you know, from family members of sex offenders, from survivors of sexual assault were, was, you know, what about this big thing, forgiveness? Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing lots and lots of speaking. So I continued to do all of that. But at the same time, I reopened my, um, or I opened, um, or let's say formalized my work as a, uh, as a therapist and, um, registered with the, uh, college of social workers. And then I, my practice was about part-time and I did all my other work, speaking, writing and, and, uh, workshops and so on. Um, the other part-time I also during this time as well had, um, because of the possibilities of post-traumatic growth, I had gotten remarried and I had twins, um, and so my twins were still pretty little, it's a lot, everything happening all at once. So, um, but at any rate, at the beginning of, I mean, I, I had a lot of people coming to me. I mean, all of my therapy clients come to me by referral and they very often come to me through my book. So there's, or, or through Timaeus book. So just naturally, that's kind of the the clientele that will will come to me um, for those specific treatment for those specific experiences, um, uh, and then when the pandemic um, hit, uh, a couple of things happened right away. The first was I had to stop traveling, uh, so I lost all of the work that I'd been doing in person, um, which was about fifty percent. Uh, my husband lost his job, um, and, uh, our kids were sent home from school. So that's the story of a lot of people. Um, but then what immediately happened and this all took place within the same 12 days, I received an email, uh, from an organization in the Bahamas, uh, a nonprofit group supporting, uh, survivors of sexual assault. Uh, and they had just reached out to me through psychology today, through my profile there and asked me, and they said, we have a couple of, um, women from Toronto who were in the Bahamas. Uh, they were sexually assaulted here and we would like to, um, pay for their therapy back in Toronto. Uh, do you have room in your practice? We found you online because of your expertise. And I said, of course, yeah, actually I have nothing but room right now because <laughs> of all these changes. I said, sure. No problem. It was only when I contacted the first uh, of these two survivors. I mean, first of all, I learned that neither one of them uh, lives in Toronto. Um, I, not, I, if you don't live in Canada, not that many people know Canadian geography all that well. <laughs> you know? So that's okay. Um, but uh, at any rate, uh, it was only in my first conversation with my the first survivor that I realized um, that her that her assailant was Peter Nygaard. And, um, I actually had not heard of the, um, civil class action lawsuit that had been launched again against him just a few weeks before, mainly because, um, most of the news was about COVID mm-hmm. and I'm not a big news watcher anyway, because you probably know this, Laura Lee, when you, when you're a 
trauma survivor and you're really sensitive to violence, you make a lot of choices about what you can consume on TV, what you can't and so on. So I've just never really been a big news watcher. Right. It's self-care. Um, it's a hundred percent. And also when, I mean, when you're involved as I am in all your work involves um, gritty and true crime, it's not, it's not entertainment <laughs> on, in any way. So um, at any rate, I, um, I, I had missed all that in the news. So I was speaking to this for a survivor and she was absolutely terrified, mistrustful. She was asking, she said to me, how do I know you're not a spy for Peter Nygaard? Mm. And that was the first I heard his name in anything I, in, you know, and when I, I didn't, I, like I said, I just didn't know anything about how or when this person had been assaulted. So in the background, she's talking to me, I'm trying to ground her a bit and I'm going, oh my gosh, what is happening? And I Google in the background, Peter Nygaard. And that's because I'm thinking Peter Nygaard that like of the Nygaard stores, the like polyester clothing for seniors, senior mm -hmm. women. Like that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, what? And so um, uh, when I Googled, that's when I found out everything. And I thought, oh my God, this is one of his survivors. And then I called the other person, same thing. And then over time, um, I think uh, very quickly, a lot, a lot of women and girls were coming forward at that point because that's the very, very good thing that media can do is break a story that tells people you're not alone. Yeah. You are not alone. And there's actually someone you can talk to. There are lawyers, there's law enforcement, there's therapy. So, um, that's when my, I just began to be referred literally dozens uh, of women uh, and many of whom were girls at the time of their assault. And because of, I am a natural born advocate, but also because my, um, you know, my profession as a social worker, we, we are called to advocacy. That's part of our mandate. And our advocacy means that we are always making sure our clients have access to information resources. They know their rights, they, um, and they can make informed choices. So that's when I got involved in, um, letting these girls and women know if and where they could report their crimes criminally, um, if they, if they w had any interest in joining civil case and so on. And then from there, things just evolved into, um, you know, uh, participating in some media to be a voice, um, for them, um, and, and kind of everything that I'd gone through in my life personally, professionally, everything I knew about trafficking through Tamea came together to, um, the role that I'm in, that I'm in now. I often think of, you remember the pilot who landed the plane on the Hudson river? Mm -hmm. Yes. And I remember him saying that, um, he just felt like his entire, everything in his entire career had prepared him for that one minute and 30 seconds. Right. And it's, yeah. a, it's a way I identify with, I think the role that I'm in now working to, to support these survivors as both their therapist and advocate media spokesperson working really hard to bring more, a more trauma informed approach um, by, by lawyers, law enforcement, media, and so on. And, um, and standing up for what just is not right. right. Wow. Yeah. I, I, one of my 
former guest, previous guest, um, Dave Scatchard. He's actually um, an NHL center for the Vancouver uh, Canucks. Mm-hmm. He um, he said something that was so poignant about how you know he asked he asked God why why am I going through all of this? He went through early Alzheimer's just because of all of the hits he took playing in in the NHL, and he said that God told him that it was because he, it was to prepare him to help the people he was going to help because he was not going to be able to understand them unless he went through it himself. Mm-hmm. And okay. I thought that, that, that was a really incredible way of looking at it. Cause I mean, we all, we all struggle mm-hmm. and I think that there's a reason to we have something greater than ourselves that we are there to, you know, it's to prepare us. And I think what you mm-hmm. said was poignant as well. And um, absolutely, I, I, you know, and this is what a lot, you know, with so many of those survivors that I'm working with um, and certainly in my own journey, it's, you know, what happened is senseless. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we can carve out some kind of purpose from it, we are able to get usually to a place of acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, acceptance of, I didn't ask for this in my life. There's nothing that I did to bring this to me, you know, um, um, but that there is something that I can do with it. And the often people have a, a spiritual component or, you know, I'm not in any way a religious person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I left the church that I'd been born to because I had a lot of problems with patriarchy <laughs> and abuse, and it just was not an institution that I could have anything to do with as an institution. Right. But I had a friendship with someone I call God, and um, like I'm like a fair weather friend or like a crisis friend. I, I'm a w- terrible, terrible friend to God because I only I only go to God if, when I'm begging, you know. <laughs> or like, <laughs> or I have, a lot of us do. Prayer. I have two prayers. One is please, 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 and the other is thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in my early conversations with God um, on my own journey, and I remember having them sometimes from inside a closet where I would just cry and cry and cry. And I remember this conversation that I had. Um, pretty soon after uh, Jason's arrest and I had not spoken to God for a very long time. And I just said, I'm like, okay, we're going to make a deal. I'm not going to ask you why. I'm not going to ask you why this happened because I know there is no answer. And even you don't have an answer for this, Mm -hmm. but I am just going to ask you what you want me to do with it. And I'm going to ask you for the strength to do it. And I can only be, I'm in the thank you, thank you, thank you um, part of my prayers um, because that's, I think, what I was able to do. It wasn't easy. Um, But to be in a place now where I get the privilege of helping other people find their way and make some sense of the senseless, there's nowhere else I would rather be. And don't get me wrong, I, I, I'm, I'm on my knees a lot with the please, 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 mm-hmm. you know, um, for sure. None of, none, I don't think there's a lot of people who aren't at, at this 
point in our world and in our lives. And it doesn't matter if you're religious or you're talking to God or you're just, you know, feeling the air around you. It doesn't matter. Um, but you know, when we, when we're at that place, um, you know, we, we often just want to know that there's maybe something bigger than us that's going to provide support. Um, and then we see those earth angels around that show up to say, Hey, I'm here for you. And that's incredible. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, before I I definitely want to touch on your recently released book, Heal (laughs) for Real, a guided journal to forgiving others and yourself. It's not a memoir, um, but such a helpful guide for healing. Why did you decide to write this book and the format? Because it is a journal. It's basically a prompted journal. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that because sometimes we open up the journals and we just say, okay, well, we'll just write. But I love that it's guided. Um, can oh, you talk yeah. a little bit about I, it? What I love about a new notebook is the cover and the first page. And then I, and then I get completely overwhelmed by <laughs> like a blank journal for me is like, and I'm a professional writer. I mean, that's so, so I'm like, I cannot, I need to start with fill in the blanks, circle the word, you know, that's, so that is how this, how Heal for Real, the guided journal to forgiveness starts. Um, Heal for Real is really like for me, the, the sister of my memoir, Through the Glass. Um, Through the Glass is my journey to figure out what forgiveness means and doesn't mean for me, because it sure doesn't mean saying what happened was okay. Right. Um, And and then how to apply it and how to live with the, the commitment to seeing humanity behind the horror and letting myself off of the hook of a, a, a lifetime chain to resentment, anger, bitterness, blame, self-pity, self-hatred, all those things. Um, and so Heal for Real, though, is your story. It's the story of, uh, the, the, of everyone who picks it up and takes a pen or pencil crayons to it and who wants to figure out in a guided and supported and, and cared for safe environment of a book with my voice and the stories of so many other people to figure out what forgiveness means and doesn't mean to you and all the options for how you'd like to apply it in your life at a pace that's okay for you. Um, you get to rage in the journal. You get to cross stuff off. You get to scribble. You get to write. You get to um, understand what forgiveness means to a whole bunch of other people and draw from their experiences to figure out what it means for you. And so I wanted to bring this to the world. Like we, we just need it so much. And again, at the, when I had to stop traveling to lead forgiveness workshops and retreats, which are always transformative. And I've led them in hotel ballrooms at conferences in big cities. And I've led them on the land in the Arctic where I, washed my hair with snow and had the privilege of working with Inuit survivors of residential schools. Um, and people are the same. You know, that's what I love is that we're the same. When we, co- when we connect on our brokenheartedness, we connect on our hope, we connect about the pain that we're in, uh, we're raw and we're real and vulnerable, we can heal we can start from that place to heal and find support and, uh, and find community even. Um, so I was doing all of that work in, in real, in, in 
in person. And then when the pandemic hit and canceled all of it, I thought, okay, here's my pandemic project. I'm going to, what I had long wanted to do anyway, was put all of my curriculum that I developed over the years with my partner in crime prevention and fellow author, Katie Hutchison, um, and, uh, and put it into a format that people can use from home because everybody's at home now. Right. And also we're going to need to a lot more forgiveness when you're either in complete isolation um, and, and you can, you're, you may be in isolation of the heart as well, or you are now with the same two or three people all the time. (laughs) Yes. Everywhere. (laughs) So uh, like not everywhere. In one place, rather. So um, that's where Heal for Real came from. And it was just a, a, a joy, an absolute joy to work on it. It was kind of healing for me. I, I wrote, because as I just described to you, the <laughs> a bit about how my day-to-day life looks like with, um, you know, not only dozens of survivors of Peter Nygaard and that huge investigation, but um, the other half of my practice, which is, you know, people in, in all different life situations and my kids at home and da, 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 all this stuff. Um, so I got up and, and wrote usually at four thirty or five in the morning when no one can interrupt you. And it was a beautiful and um, it's like an experience of self care as well to be able to write it. And now it's just a, it's just a joy to get it, get it out to everybody. And so that forgiveness can be something that is accessible to everyone in the right way. It's not, going to be left as a philosophy for monks in monasteries whom I love. But sometimes, you know, those of us who are maybe living lives, (laughs) most of the rest of us who are living really incredibly busy lives where everyone needs us, especially as women, Mm -hmm. uh, that we might also be able to access the, the philosophy, the intellect, the spirituality, the, of forgiveness and then the practicality of it. How do you do it? (laughs) You do call forgiveness the new F word. And I, and I know for a lot of people, you know, the idea for forgiveness, it can incite some anger depending on, you know, how you're in your healing process, I I guess from, from trauma, if you have even started that process, Um, like how do I ever forgive my abuser, you know, I'll be honest. I I was I was one of those people. My story, you know, I I've, I'm obviously I'm I, I for many people they know I'm a childhood sexual abuse survivor. Um, I was um, abused as a child by my father, and for the longest time it was just so much anger. I was so angry, and I and just the idea of someone saying forgive was just crazy to me. Um, but I did uh one of my way of healing i did some, i did psychedelic assisted therapy and in my journey i realized that my father had gone through his own trauma where he you know he didn't understand he didn't you know he had his own trauma and that the abuse wasn't to hurt me it's just it's it's just something that you know that kind of, he just didn't understand where it, there was abuse throughout his childhood. Um, so 
I, I like to think about when after that, I, I had a little more compassion mm-hmm. towards my father. Um, but I still I, I'm I still I'm not going to call him and say I forgive you or even have a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I guess if you're saying that, you know, forgiveness can mean so many things to different people, I feel like in a way it was more understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so for other people who are like, well, how should I, why should I forgive my abuser or forgive this person who victimized me? What do you say to those people? Mm-hmm. Well, you put it so very well. And I want to take, <clears throat> excuse me, take a moment to thank you for sharing your story and to acknowledge the, your journey and the payment that you have gone through as well as your um, superhuman strength of finding <laughs> compassion um, and being able to put yourself in your father's shoes even for a moment and come to the realization that hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. Um, because that is a, a huge entry point to forgiveness. Um, when we can consider the idea, the concept of what if the person that hurt me, the person who abused me, the person who murdered my family member, the person who, um, or, or the, the institution that created laws that did this to my people. What if that was them doing their best in that time? Mm-hmm. And it's a radical way of looking at things. Um, when we do that, sometimes the first thing we can, we feel is pity, like how unbelievably sad that for whatever reason, that person thought that the best thing they could do was pull a knife. The best thing they could do was create a law that excluded people. That's the best that they could do. And so if we even sometimes start with a place of sadness and pity, that that's, that's it. That's how, that's how shut down that person was. That how, that's how hurt they were. That's how ignorant they were. That's how righteous they were. That's how privileged and powerful and, and racist or whatever they were. That's sad. Mm -hmm. And it's never that we're going to let them off the hook for what they did. That's one of the biggest mistakes. I think that when, when people kind of um, bristle at the word forgiveness, it's that there's this concept of like that, that means that someone's going to get away with it. That means that we are, um, we're pushovers we are weak. We are going to allow this to happen again. We're giving permission. We're pardoning. We're, you know, all of those things. When what we're really, really trying to do in forgiveness is let ourselves off the hook. Let ourselves off the hook of the the rage, resentment, bitterness. That we were that that was we were hooked with just like a fish on a hook um and now is stopping us from being able to breathe properly 
find our own way forward. And that forgiveness also involves accountability, you know, and that we may or may not ever get. You might never get it from your father, but you can restore your own dignity and your own strength by being that person of compassion with boundaries, right? By saying Mm -hmm. also, I forgive you because you could not do any better than what you did to me at that time. Um, And I don't want to be in a relationship with you because of it, but I'm not going to let what you did to me dictate all of my decisions, relationships, emotions for the rest of my life. I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. And the word that I'm going to choose for that is forgiveness. So wow. Um, well, thank you so much. Any parting words before we go? Oh, just thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to talk about my, my favorite F word. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and just wishing every person who's listening, um, that, just wellness and strength on their forgiveness journey, please reach out to me. Please pick up, pick up the book. So, you know, you're not alone. Um, and, uh, and let's, uh, let's get out there and F it up. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you joining me today and sharing all of the wisdom, wisdom from so much experience. Um, and just what you've done to move past all of this trauma and what you've experienced and to really help others. I applaud you. Thank you so much. And the very same to you, Laura Lee, and every person who's listening because everyone's listening because they also want to grow uh, and change and be healed. And so my love to everybody. Thank you. That was Shannon Maroney, best-selling author and author of the recently released book, Heal for Real. For more on Shannon, visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's the letter A, tstpodcast.com. She also contributed to January's issue of Authentic Insider, which you can find at my website. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider magazine in your inbox monthly. You can also connect with Shannon at www.shannonmaroney.com. It's all Also, scrolling across next to that fortune cookie, you can actually click right on that and it'll send you to her website. And her books are available everywhere books are sold. So be sure to check out, you know, check out Fireside next week. I'll be hosting two shows Wednesday the 12th with author Karen Gross about trauma education and on Thursday the 13th with Amy Guerrero with Thrive in Recovery to discuss trauma and substance abuse. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Thank you for being a part of the conversation. Take care, everyone.